As we continue our worship in the word this morning, let's take a couple moments to bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to come worship you during the season of Advent, to be reminded that Jesus is the one who was born in a manger, died on a cross. He rose again three days later, and we declare him to be Lord this morning. Uh, Father, as we continue our worship in your word, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts and minds for the truths therein. Pray, Lord, that you'd get us out of the way. We know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, a few centuries ago, there were a group of missionaries who were known as one-way missionaries. These were individuals who headed out to the mission field, bought their ticket, without ever expecting to ever return home again. Uh, with the few earthly belongings that they packed, they didn't pack them in suitcases. Rather, they packed them in coffins as they said goodbye to their loved ones. One of the one-way missionaries was a man who lived during the 17 and 1800s, uh, a man by the name of A.W. Milne. And A.W. Milne headed over to the New Hebrides Islands as he set sail with his coffin fully packed. He was ready to give his life for the cause of Christ, fully knowing that as he headed there, every other missionary who went there before him had been killed by headhunters, had been martyred for their faith. But A.W. Maline wasn't afraid to die because he had already died to himself. He had already his coffin packed. And long story short, he ended up ministering in the South Pacific for over 35 years. He was buried in the middle of the village, and there on his tombstone, after this ministry there, was written, before he came, there was no light. After he left, there is no darkness. This morning, I'd like you to consider with me for just a moment, what in the world would motivate a believer, even among us here this morning, not just to go out to the mission field abroad, but what would motivate any believer to pack a coffin rather than a suitcase? What would motivate a believer, even among us here this morning, uh, to risk their life for the name of Jesus Christ and to preach Christ and him crucified to the ends of the earth, even if that meant giving our lives for Christ? And if I could make it more personal this morning, how is it, is it possible for us, even as believers in this room, to share that same motivation and have such a passion for the loss that you and I would be willing to deny ourselves and our earthly comforts, that we would be willing to take up our cross and follow after Jesus, even if it meant reaching the unreached, even if it meant giving up our life for Christ. This morning, we're going to take some time to talk about our motivation for ministry in the letter of Galatians, chapter 4, I invite you there with me, and we're going to be in verses 12 to 20. We're going to be talking about what is our motivation for ministry when it comes to parenting? What is our motivation for ministry when it comes to those who are under our spiritual care or those who are in our circles of influence in regards to those we get to reach in terms of evangelism and edification as we build one another up according to our needs in Christ Jesus? What is our motivation for ministry? You know, if there was someone who had the right motivation for the ministry, it was the Apostle Paul. The author of the letter of Galatians, the author of the majority of the New Testament, 
Uh, Paul is writing these believers, many of which he had originally preached the good news of the gospel to. And as he writes the letter of Galatians, he is both declaring the truth and defending the truth as he's calling some of these believers who have strayed from the truth back to the truth. If you remember back in Galatians 3, Paul began to call these believers back to the truth. False teachers had come in and they began to lead the people of God astray. They were teaching that faith in Jesus was important, but it wasn't enough for salvation. If you were a Gentile, you had to first become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to walk in obedience to the law as a means of salvation. And so Paul, beginning in chapter 3, said, Oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you called them back to the truth, reminding them of how they first came to faith in Jesus, pointing them to scriptures, even pointing them to Abraham and saying, Abraham was just, would believed God and he was, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Well, as Paul continues to call these believers back to the truth, he describes for them his motivation for ministry. His motivation for ministry when he first declared the good news of the gospel to them and his motivation for ministry as he continues to call them back to the truth that Christ might be fully formed in them. So as we consider what should be our motivation for ministry, we're going to consider what we learn from Paul's example. So I'd invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the word Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 and reading to verse 20. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in good things always, and not only when I am present with you. Pay careful, close, pay careful attention to verse 19. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like you to be present, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. You know, following Paul's example, what should be our motivation for ministry? We have a unique ministry around this time of the year, the season of Advent. Next week will be Christmas Eve. The day after is Christmas Day. It's a time when we celebrate the, the coming of Christ, the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus, eagerly anticipating his second coming as well. What's our motivation for ministry as we get to share our faith with the lost, as we get to encourage one another, as we build one another up according to our needs in Christ Jesus. You know, as we walk through our text, I'd just like to give you a few headings that will guide us in our study as we consider what's our motivation for ministry as we follow Paul's example. First, we're, we're going to consider an urgent plea by Paul in verse 12. And we're going to talk about a helpful reminder as we read through verse 16. And then we're going to consider a selfless motivation in verses 17 to 20. Let me begin this morning by considering this urgent plea that Paul makes. How does he make this plea? He says, brethren, 
brethren, in verse 12, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Uh, the manner in which Paul makes this plea is first by referring to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He refers to them as brethren. And, and, like, and we can easily overlook that, even as we might read this, but I'd like to remind us three reasons why he calls them brethren. First, he calls them brethren as he makes this plea in order to express his love and care for them, his concern for them. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, and so he generally, genuinely cares for them. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Pretty stern words, Paul, to call a bunch of Christians foolish as those who have gone astray and those who have backslidden into this false teaching. But we were reminded that Paul's motivation back then was love and concern for them because he loved them enough to confront them and call them back to the truth. And his love and concern continues to be the motivation for him now to call them brethren. Brethren, I urge you to be like me, for I became like you. And so first, he genuinely cares for them. That's why he calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, that's something possibly we've gotten away from. Within the church, uh, it used to be more tradition to refer to our brothers and sisters in Christ, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. But what a wonderful reminder of who we are in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ and to express our brotherly affection one for another. Secondly, he doesn't just express his love and concern, care for them and concern for them by calling them brethren. He also reminds them of their identity in Christ. You know, whenever we call one another our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're reminded the reason we are brothers and sisters is because first we're adopted sons and daughters of God. If you were with us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul reminded these believers that by faith in Christ, um, they have now become adopted sons. Prior to faith in Jesus, they were slaves under the law, but having come into faith, they are now adopted sons with all of the privileges and the benefits of being a child of God. What is one of the greatest privileges and benefits of being a child of God? You are a recipient of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in your heart the moment you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And that Holy Spirit gives you the ability, according to chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, to cry out, Abba, Father, reminding us that he is our Father. And if God is our Father and that's our identity, then how much more are we united together by faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. We, I said it last week, you know, there's a saying that goes, blood is thicker than water. That's basically saying that if you're blood relatives, you have a unique bond that keeps you together. Well, we're reminded in Scripture, faith is thicker than blood. What binds us together one to another is our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. As those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, how much more are we united as brothers and sisters in Christ? And we will be united as brothers and sisters in Christ, both in this life and the life to come. You can't pull us apart. And it's a helpful reminder that should be our relationship with one Another, and we should treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ accordingly. Number three, the reason he calls them brethren is because he wants what's best for them. You know, if I really care for my biological brothers and sisters, I want what's best for them. And Paul wants what's best for them. And so he says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became 
like you. Paul knows what's best for these believers is that they would become like him. Is Paul saying, I I wish you were like me, a man of sinless perfection? Absolutely not. Paul knows that he's not perfect. That's why he needed to trust in Jesus and put his faith in him. But Paul, when he says, I urge you to become like me, Paul is saying, I urge you to become like me, knowing the truth. Paul's longing and desire is that these believers who have strayed because of these false teachers would come back to the truth, that they would know the truth, that they would believe the truth, that they would declare the truth, and that they would defend the truth of the gospel. What is the truth? Galatians 2.16, it says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul's longing for his readers, including the believers here this morning, is that we would know the truth, that we are placed in a right standing with God. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law that we can contribute nothing to our own salvation. And so Paul says, be like me by knowing the truth. Secondly, be like me being free from deception. What deception does Paul want his readers to be free from and us to be free from? Free from the deception of believing that you and I can contribute anything to our own salvation. Free from the deception of believing our religious activity or ritual will do anything to gain us favor or forgiveness or the promise of everlasting life. Paul's longing and desire is that we would be free from this deception. Paul was previously deceived. He was a man who placed his confidence in the flesh and he argued in Philippians, if there was a man who could place his confidence in the flesh, Paul says it was me. Let me read to you Philippians 3, 4 through 9. It says this, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Paul says, I'll challenge you on that. You think you're a good Jew? You think you've been circumcised and all the rest? Let me challenge you on that. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, this is what I used to trust in. A Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness within the law, blameless. Paul said, I would dot the I's, I would cross the T's. Verse 7, but the things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul said, none of those things did anything to give me a right standing before God and favor before God. Verse 8, yet indeed I count all things loss. All of it, circumcision, obedience to the law, all of it lost for the excellence of knowing of Christ Jesus, my Lord, of whom I have suffered all things and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul says, 
I desire. I urge you to be like me, for I became like you. Become like me, knowing the truth that in Christ, guilty sinners are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Become like me, free from the deception of believing that I can add or contribute anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross or add anything to my, to gain my favor before God and to contribute anything to my own salvation. And thirdly, Paul is saying, become like me, knowing what it means to be in Christ. Let me bring you back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says this, and this is his desire for his readers, including us this morning. He says this, that you would know what it means to be in Christ, for I have been crucified with Christ. We've been united with him in his death. We are new creations in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, what I have, I desire for you to have, that you would know that the way that you were saved by grace through faith is the same way that you will be sanctified by grace through faith in Jesus as you are conformed to the image and likeness of Christ through the Holy Spirit who enables you and empowers you to do just that. Paul says, brethren, I urge you to be like me. Paul says, I urge you to be like me, for I have became like you. What does Paul mean when he says, for I became like you? Well, Paul was probably referring to the manner in which he first shared his faith with them. Paul was a man who was so motivated, so passionate about the truth of the gospel, loved the law so much that he was willing to leave behind everything, take up his cross and follow after Jesus. And he did it through three missionary journeys and beyond. And throughout the first missionary journey, he began to reach the Galatians for Christ. And the manner in which he did was by interacting with them, getting to know them, possibly getting to know their language, sitting down and eating food with them, respecting their customs as far as he did not compromise his faith or his fidelity to Jesus Christ. Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. He says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant of all that I may win the more. And to the Jews, I became as Jews that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law or without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Paul says, brethren, I urge you to become like me because I became like you. I talked with you. I had conversations with you. I had meals with you that I wouldn't do as a Jew. Paul says, I treated you not like Peter had treated you when he came to Galatia back in chapter 2, verse 12. And when those false teachers came, he was like, I'm not eating with you guys. No, Paul says, I, I, I sat down and I ate with you and I talked with you and I got to know your customs in as far as it did not compromise my fidelity to Christ. I've become all things to all men that I might win some. And Paul says, I got down on your level to share my faith with you. So now I urge you to become like me for I became like you. 
Let me ask you this question. What is our motivation for ministry in light of Paul's example? Our motivation for ministry is love. It's love. Paul loves these people so much that he's willing to call them foolish Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul loves these believers so much that as he calls them back to the truth, he reminds them that they are brethren, that they are adopted sons and daughters of God who had trusted in Jesus and were justified by grace through faith. And he calls them back to the truth. And he says, be like me, for I became like you. His motivation is love, and our motivation is love as well. Three things. Number one, our love for God is what motivates our ministry. It's a reminder this morning that the minister is not just the pastor or the pastoral staff or the elders of the church. The ministers are the whole body of Christ individually. To be a minister means to be a servant. Ephesians 4.11, Paul reminded us that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. As the word of God is preached and proclaimed to the people of God, the people of God who are informed by the word are also transformed by it and then go into ministry inside and outside of the church. And your ministry and my ministry and our ministry is motivated by our love and our fidelity to God. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Because God loved me, because he condescended through Christ into the incarnation, and he was born in a manger and died on a cross for me. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still yet sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. That love for us is what motivates us to love him and to serve him faithfully in ministry. Not just to serve for one Sunday a month. Not just to share our faith here and there, but to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. He doesn't just want one hour of our day. He doesn't just want a, a, a few minutes of prayer. He wants everything. He wants 100%. He becomes Lord of all. We are to motiv be motivated by our love for God because of his love for us. Secondly, our motivation for ministry is our, our love for one another as believers, Paul expresses this urgent plea in the context of brotherly affection. He's, he, he, he urges them to become like him, knowing the truth, being free from deception, knowing what it means to be in Christ and enjoying the privileges and benefits that come with that because he loves them and he desires what's best for them. Uh, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to desire what's best for them? Because if you truly do, uh, how should we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? If faith is thicker than blood, how should we trust those that we love within the body? Well, number one, I think one way is, is simply by being present in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, when we gather for a Sunday morning, when we meet together in smaller gatherings, 
in a small group, possibly one-on-one, when you show up, you are showing others that you care. We gather on Sunday morning not just to worship and glorify God, but to edify one another with the spiritual gifts God has given each one of us. So simply by being present, it makes a big difference. We get sick sometimes, and other things happen, but as far as you are able to attend a gathering, a large gathering, a small gathering, one-on-one, take every opportunity to do that because you're showing your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so simply being present goes such a long ways. Secondly, praying for one another and following up as you do. You know, when you turn to a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, how can I pray for you? And they don't just answer, hey, I'm good, you're good, we're all good. I mean, now you're making steps to move forward to say, hey, we're actually here to support one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not here to judge you, I'm here to pray for you, and I'm here to walk alongside of you, help bear your burdens, help celebrate your blessings. And so when you can ask somebody how you can pray for them, and they're open and honest and transparent because we're all going through something, that shows that we really care for one another. As we take time to follow up and say, how are you doing? How have you been? As you pray for others, it it goes such a far ways. You know, as we kick off the new year, um, as a church, we want to dedicate the first uh, month to prayer. And so for the first 24 days of prayer, we should be praying all year long. But as we make it a priority for us as a corporate gathering, what we're going to do every Every morning from 6.30 to 7.30, we're going to have prayer in the parsonage. So we're going to have the prayer house, right? And so we want to pack that place out from 6.30 to 7.30. Before work, you come in and you can pray. If you want to stay longer, you can do that. But for those days of prayer, those 24 days, as we pray and express our desperate dependence upon the Lord, we want to invite you to pray every morning for an hour. If you can't make it out, that you would commit that hour to prayer. Because as a church, we want to say we, we know how much we desperately need God. The effectiveness of our ministry as a church, the effectiveness of evangelism and edification and, and being the church that God has called us to be is dependent on prayer. Uh, the, 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 the manner in which God continues to work in our hearts and our lives and and transform us into the image and likeness of Christ and answer our our greatest need is through prayer and recognize our need for it. And so be present, be prayerful, and then thirdly, serve with the gifts that God has given you and, and God will use that as you get to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. As you get to see the needs of the body, as you get to encourage one another, build one another up, if it's leading in worship and song, if it's teaching, whatever those gifts God has given you are that you would serve the Lord. So love God, love one another, our motivation for ministry. Thirdly, our love for the lost. What would motivate men and women of God, believers, to to go out to a mission field abroad and take a coffin rather than a suitcase, their love for the lost. What would motivate a man like A.W. Milne, knowing that, you know, every guy before him was killed as they attempted to go to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, love. What motivated Paul to take three missionary journeys around the world? It was his love for the lost and our prayer is that we would share that same love. There are those in our family, 
those among our friends, those among our neighbors who are in our circles of influence that you can reach in a way that I can't, and those are those that we need to be praying for. Perhaps there are some around the table who are going to be with you this Christmas dinner, and you're going to have an opportunity to talk to them about the most important thing in their life, their relationship with Jesus. Do you love them enough to share that with them? Do you love them enough to pray for them and the opportunity that their hearts would be open to the truth? And so our motivation for ministry is that of love. So first, we saw the urgent plea of Paul. Secondly, a helpful reminder. As we finish up verse 12 and read all the way to verse 16, a a helpful reminder. Paul is calling these believers back to the truth. He makes this urgent plea, become like me for I became like you. Now the helpful reminder. What does he remind these believers of how they first received him? Paul wants to remind them how he was received and including the message of the good news of the gospel, how they received it with such joy and how they received him with such hospitality and to point out how different it is now that they treat him and the message he declares as an enemy. So Paul begins by saying the manner in which he was received, the manner (coughs) in which he was treated was without being injured and without harm. Verse 12 continues and said, you have not injured me at all. Um, When you share your faith with somebody, when you share the good news of the gospel, the bad news, that apart from Christ, because we all sin, uh, we stand condemned. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. You and I will have different ways people respond to us. As you have conversations with folks, some people respond positively, And you get to have good conversations. They may say, you know, I'm not ready yet, but I want to keep talking. That's positive response. Others respond negatively. They say, around the holidays, especially Christmas, don't you bring up Jesus, even though it's the reason for the season. We don't want you to talk about Jesus. Don't force that on us. And so some people are going to respond negatively. Others respond apathetically. They just don't care. You believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. You can preach all you want to me, but I just don't care apathetically, and others will respond violently. There are believers all around the world who risk their lives and have given their lives for the cause of Christ simply by declaring the truth of the good news of the gospel, and the response of those around them is violence, but that doesn't stop them. They continue to preach the gospel. Paul says, listen, I've seen it all. I've been beaten. I've been in prison. My life was risked. And eventually his life was taken. But Paul said, you Galatian believers, you didn't harm me. When you heard the good news I shared with you, that guilty sinners are justified by faith and not by the works of the law, you didn't injure me. You didn't harm me. You received me. So first, they received him and the message positively. And he reminds them of that. It's so good to be reminded of how you and I came to faith. Be reminded of those who faithfully shared with us their faith. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you initially had responded negatively, possibly even violently. Get away from me and keep that message as far away from me as possible. But God began to work on your heart, change it and transform it. And now you are a follower 
of Jesus. Paul reminds them of what it was like when they first received him and the message that he had shared. Secondly, he was received by those who knew that the reason he was sharing the gospel was because of a physical infirmity. Paul continues in verse 13, and he says this, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you as at first. And interesting, whatever reason, we don't know. We don't know the infirmity. We don't know if it was an injury. Uh, a lot of people like to speculate. Oh, it was malaria. Others say epilepsy. Something had to do with the eyes. And we go on and on about that. Paul doesn't tell us exactly what it is. But whatever the infirmity or injury was, it caused him to linger or stay in Galatia and the region there to minister to the gospel. And they knew because of his physical infirmament, he stayed with them for the amount of time that he did and shared the good news with them. Uh, in other words, this is interesting to note that Paul's physical infirmity didn't hinder his ministry, actually enhanced it. You know, we go through hard times, difficult times. We experience sicknesses and injuries, and we think to ourselves, our ministry has been put on hold. We've been placed on a shelf, and we're waiting for what's next when the reality is your infirmity or your sickness, your injury should not hinder your ministry. It should enhance it, and God can use that injury, and those whom you have in your circles of influence to minister to those that you couldn't if you didn't have that injury or that sickness or that hardship going on in your life. Every now and again, they get to chat with different members of our body. They sometimes go into the hospital for surgeries, texting somebody this past week and saying, how are you doing? How'd the surgery go? They responded and said, the surgery went great, but I have even better news. I said, what could be better news than hearing that the surgery went well and beyond your expectations? And they said, you won't believe the people I've been had the opportunity to minister to in this hospital. You won't believe the people that I've got to talk about with, about with, about Jesus. You know, um, a couple weeks ago, there were uh, two gals who had both had surgeries uh, this past year, and they had the same doctor, and that same doctor was invited to church by both of them. Isn't that awesome? Don't allow your infirmity to hinder your ministry, but allow God to use it to enhance it. You never know what God is going to do, you know. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, speaking of his thorn in the flesh, he says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. We don't know if it's the same one. It could be. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That can be difficult to hear, but it gives you peace when you hear it. Perhaps you're in that state right now, and you're like, Lord, take this thorn from me. This hardship, this difficulty, this sickness, this injury, this pain, these problems. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I am enough for you. He says, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will, will rather boast in my infirmities. I'll praise the Lord for them, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So how was Paul received by these believers? Without harm or injury? He was received... 
with them knowing that his physical infirmity was the reason he lingered there and shared the gospel initially with them. And the manner in which he was received is not as one rejected or despised, but as a messenger of God, even Jesus Christ himself. I mean, read this. Verse um, 14, he goes on to say, and my trial which was in my flesh, you didn't despise or reject. So whatever his sickness or injury was, it possibly disfigured him a bit, possibly slowed him down. You know, when you experience a sickness, people may say, I don't, I don't want to hear your, what message you got. You're under some, some curse or something. I don't want to hear from you. And they didn't despise him. They didn't reject him because of his sickness. It says, but you received me. How? As an angel of God, as an angel of light, even as Christ Jesus himself. Why did they receive Paul this way? Because they recognized that he had received the authority of the word of God concerning the truth of the gospel. That guilty sinners, knowing that they were not in a right standing with God, could be justified by faith and not by obeying a list of rules, do's and don'ts. That they could be made right with God, not by a religious system or ritual, but by faith, by belief in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. Paul says, you received me as an angel, as if Jesus Christ himself had provided you the message of the gospel. And now he confronts him, them and says this to them, what then was this blessing you Enjoyed. He reminds them of how they received. So he asked them, what was this blessing you had enjoyed? If you go back to chapter 3, verse 9, what is the blessing of God? It's the blessing of Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. How do we experience the blessing of God? And, and how are we blessed alongside of believing Abraham? Chapter 3, verse 9, by faith, we are blessed alongside of believing Abraham because we are justified by faith. You simply believe in the Lord Jesus and it's accounted to you as righteousness as you believe, yes, Jesus, I believe you took my place on that cross and you provide me a path to salvation and everlasting life. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? Let me ask you that question. If you're a believer here today, what is the blessing you enjoyed? Do you remember how you came to faith? Who shared the good news of the gospel with you? How you opened the Bible and the truth of the gospel came alive? How you recognized that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And God, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm among those who have missed the mark. I have fallen short. And when you realize Christ paid your debt and went to a cross, bought your salvation, did you enjoy your blessing and are you continuing to enjoy it today? Do you enjoy it so much that you get excited about the truth of the gospel and you want to share it with others as well because you believe it? And then Paul goes on to say, <clears throat> for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given to them to me. Paul says you were so appreciative of the good news of the gospel that you had received spiritual sight, that you as a guilty sinner are justified by faith and not by the works of the law, that if you had received the message, you would have done anything for me. You would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. This is why some people think it's a, a physical ailment of the eyes because he says, if you were going to give me something, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. But Paul is basically saying you would have sacrificed everything because the message is so good. 
When you get to know the truth of the gospel because it's so good, you're willing to give everything up for it. These earthly treasures in this world will pass away. They don't compare to the eternal treasures of heaven. That's what motivates someone to pack a coffin rather than a suitcase and go to the unreached people groups of the world and say, wherever you send me, Lord, I will go. Paul then says this, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Paul wasn't looking to gain popularity. Paul's motivation for ministry is not just love for God, love for fellow believers, love for the lost. His motivation for ministry is the truth. And even when the truth is unpopular with those to whom he's ministering to, he says, I will stand upon the truth even if you hate me, even if I become your enemy, because the truth is what sets you free and the truth is what matters? What should be our motivation for ministry? Love. And secondly, truth. Our fidelity to the truth of God and his word, even when it makes others uncomfortable. Any parents in the room? You sometimes speak truth to your children and tell them how it is. You're not always going to be their best friend. Sometimes you are their enemy. Sometimes it's going to take a little bit for them to see it from your perspective. But you tell them, I want what's best for you. So I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear so that you experience God's best for your life. This is a man who is committed to the truth of the gospel. Are we so committed to the truth of the gospel that we are willing to even offend those who need to hear it? They may be offended, but the best thing that we can give them is the truth because the truth is what sets them free that guilty sinners get justified by grace through faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law. What a terrible thing to live your whole life thinking that your good deeds are going to gain you favor before God and then you die someday, you meet the Lord and he says, you're not entering because of your sin. And he say, no one told me. Well, we're called to tell. Ultimately, we know God is sovereign over salvation and he leads and guides and moves hearts to himself, but he uses believers like you and I to share that message with the lost. We are to be committed to the truth. Our motivation should be the truth. <coughs> How do we do that first? Get to know the truth. I pray that we're a church that is committed to the truth of God's word, that that, that we are a church built on the foundation of the truth of, of God's word. That when I get to share with you the, 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 a message, that, that I'm not just preaching from experience or education, but I'm preaching from the authority of God's word, knowing that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that you and I may be completely thoroughly equipped for, for every good work, that we would get to know the truth. And so, let me ask you, how's, how's your time in the Word each day? How's your time in the Word this past week? You know, sometimes we say, oh, it's almost the new year. When the new year comes, then I'm going to get back into my routine. Then I'm going to start um, my time in, in the Word and prayer. I'm going to spend five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. No, the time is now. If you don't start now, what makes you think things are going to change in the new year? 
This morning, we're encouraged to say, what, what does God want for me right now in terms of digging into the word of God as I read, as I study it, as I memorize it? Secondly, you're invited to believe the truth. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to believe it. I talk to folks all the time, and I'm sure you have as well, who grew up in the church, exposed to the gospel at a very early age, but are not following God today. Well, why? Why do, why do so many young people, as they head off into uh, uh, the world, some, uh, and then so many leave the faith? Well, the question, was their faith genuine to begin with? Did they really believe the good news of the gospel? Because if they did, those who truly believe, understand it clearly, are going to walk in it. Now, can we stray for a time? You betcha. But those who are truly his will be called back to the truth. And if you really believe it with all of your heart, nothing's going to keep you from it. You're willing to give your life for it. You will be willing to pull out your eyes and give them to somebody if it meant receiving the good news of the gospel because it's so good. Thirdly, surround yourself with believers who know the truth and who are willing to share the truth in love, even when it's difficult to hear. I don't always want to hear the truth. But thankfully, God has placed people in my life who will tell me truth when I need to hear it, a spouse who will point me to the word when I need to be reminded of it, godly men and, men and women of God in my family, in our church, who will speak truth in love, and then fourthly, share and defend the truth even when it's unpopular. You know, why was A.W. Milne willing to go to an unreached group of people who had killed every other missionary before him because of the truth, and he believed it to be truth. What would motivate any of us to share the truth of the gospel that if they die in their sins apart from belief in Christ, they're going to spend an eternity in hell without God and his people forever and ever? If we really believe in hell, wouldn't that motivate us to go reach the lost for Christ and share it with anyone who will listen? If hell is a real thing and we want people to, 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 to be saved from that, that they wouldn't perish, wouldn't we want to share our faith with them? In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul told this to young Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. We will all give an account before the Lord. Preach the word. This is not just a command given to the pastor or the elders or those who are in ministry. This is a command given to every single one of us who have spiritual influence in the lives of others. May you preach the word as I preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it itches the ears, and when it doesn't, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in these things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. May you and I be committed to sharing and defending the truth of the gospel. And you might have some opportunities you can seize this Christmas, as you enter into the new year, when God provides them, take, take them. And then lastly, this morning, as we are motivated by the truth, can I encourage you this, this morning um, to call those who are under your spiritual care or in your circles of influence who have strayed from the truth back. I know there's a real possibility there are many here today who have some prodigal children 
who possibly heard the good news of the gospel as kids were exposed to the truth early on in life. This morning, I want to encourage you, don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. Never underestimate the power of God's word that was planted in their hearts, even at a young age, that God would allow that truth to come to life. Even today, there are days when I wake up and there's an old hymn that I used to sing at my old church growing up that pops in my head. I haven't sung it in 20, 30 years. And I think to myself, where in the world did that come from? Because you've got these hymns in your mind that declare the truth of God's word that have been planted in our mind. Even as you have your children memorizing scripture, they may not believe it, but it's there. And we can ask the power of God through the Holy Spirit to begin to awaken the truth of the gospel to that child and draw them back to himself. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that has the ability to draw those prodigals back to himself. And we can believe that. Never underestimate the power of prayer. So first, we got to see a urgent plea. Secondly, a helpful reminder. And thirdly, a selfless motivation as we consider Paul's motivation for ministry, which is not that just that the lost would be found, but that spiritual maturity would be the goal. We pick up in verse 17, and Paul begins to share his motivation by contrasting it with the motivation of the false teachers, those who had led these Galatians astray. And he says, they zealously court you. They passionately pursue you. They went after you. They expressed their concern, their love, their devotion to you. After I had left, and Paul says they pursued you, they sought to win you to the perverted gospel, which is no gospel at all, but for no good. In other words, Paul says their motivations were not good. What's Paul's motivation for sharing the gospel, declaring it and defending it? <coughs> Paul's motivation, excuse me, Paul's motivation was and continues to be that these individuals would know the truth of the gospel, that they would come to faith in Jesus and that they would see Christ formed in them. Paul's desire is that they would experience God's desire for their lives. What was the desire and motivation of these false teachers? Not that God would be glorified and Christ would be formed in them. It, it was selfish. It says they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Paul says they want to exclude you. What does it mean, exclude you from what? Possibly from Paul and the good news of the gospel and the truth and the freedom that comes from the law. And Paul says they want to exclude you that they may be zealous, that, that you may be zealous for them. In other words, that your loyalty be to them. But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. Paul says it's good to be passionate and, and pursue others out of love and introduce them to the truths of Scripture if you've got the right motivations. Paul says they don't. Their desire is not to see Christ indwell you and Christ be formed in you. Their desire is selfish. And then secondly, Paul re reveals his motivation for them by calling them little children. This is a favorite reference of the Apostle John. And now Paul calls them little children. And the reason he does that is out of his affection and love for them. He cares for them. He called them brethren earlier in verse 12. Now he calls them little children here. He knows them. He cares for them. He's like a father in the faith to them. 
He, he's the one who initially shared the gospel with many of them as they came to faith in the truth of the gospel. And it says, my little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul describes himself as a mother who is in labor. And Paul, as he describes himself as a mother is in labor, he says, I labor in birth again. So Paul says, this is not the first time I've labored in birth pains. This is the second time. What Paul is saying is the same way that a mother experiences temporary pain that can be excruciating. That temporary pain doesn't compare to the ongoing pleasure that will come when the child comes. And Paul says, the temporary pain of sharing the truth of the gospel with you, the temporary pain of calling you back to the truth, calling you foolish Galatians, and pointing you back to the truth, and, and call, even though you may still call me an enemy, I'm still committed to the truth. It's all worth it if I see Christ formed in you. And my greatest motivation is to see Christ formed in you. And Paul says, I'm going to minister to you. I'm going to stay committed to the truth until Christ be formed in you. What is our motivation for ministry, church? It's to see those who are in our circles of influence. Not only those who don't know the Lord get to know him and see that he can indwell them by faith in Christ, but that he would be fully formed in them. Our goal as a church is to make disciples. We've been given it in the Great Commission. Discipleship is twofold. It's not just edification and being built up according to our needs in Christ Jesus. It starts with evangelism. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Why do you have to go? Because people need to know the truth of the good news about Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They come to faith. They get baptized, teaching them all things that I've taught you, and lo, I'm with you to the ends of the age. And so you observe the things that you have been taught. You grow and you mature in your faith until Christ is formed in you. I think I had mentioned Ephesians 4 earlier. Ephesians 4.11 says this, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. You take a look at those four offices you know that the primary role of the, each of those offices is teaching and preaching the word. So it says he's given these individuals who teach and preach the word for the equipping of the saints. So you preach the word for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till what? Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we would experience spiritual maturity. And Paul, as he says, I labor until Christ is formed you in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul says, my greatest desire is if I could be with you, I would be with you, so that I could have a heart-to-heart -heart with you, look at you in your face, and, and communicate how much I love you and care for you. This is the pastoral heart of Paul, who even though he knows that in their eyes, many of them see him as an enemy and the message that he's declared, he says, I'm going to labor in birth pains until Christ be formed in you. You know, when it comes to pastoring, when it comes to ministering, when it comes to spiritual leaders in the church, it's not just about preaching the word. We get to hear about the hardships of pastoral ministry. 
We get to consider the, the, the pains that, uh, that, that the minister should go through in regards to seeing those who are in Christ see Christ fully formed in them and reach spiritual maturity. As you read about the heart of Paul, may this be an invitation to you to pray for your pastors, to pray for your elders, to pray for the spiritual leaders of the body. It's so easy to point out things that perhaps you don't like. It may be easy to pass judgments on this or that or decisions, but what your pastors and your elders need more than anything is prayer as we labor for the cause of Christ so that as the gospel is preached and proclaimed, Christ would indwell the unbeliever who comes to faith in Jesus and Christ would be fully formed in them. And may we labor with birth pains as we pursue spiritual maturity together as a body of Christ. What is our motivation for ministry? It's love, it's truth, and it's spiritual maturity until Christ be formed in us. If I could give us just a, a few takeaways this morning, it would be this first. Ask God for a greater motivation to see the lost come to faith. Ask God for a greater motivation to see the lost come to faith. Now, our goal is to see Christ form, but before we can see Christ form, Christ first has to indwell them. You know, James Calvert was another one-way missionary, lived from 1813 to 1892, and he was committed to reaching the indigenous people of the Fiji Islands. It's widely reported that upon his voyage, the ship's captain wanted him to turn back, saying, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And this is Calvert's reply, we died before we came here. When you've already died to yourself, taken up your cross, and you're willing to follow Jesus wherever he may go, even to reach the unreached, even if it should be our lives, there is nothing you can fear, even death itself. You can, uh, we're told, don't fear those who can kill the body, fear, those, fear the one who can destroy the soul in an eternity without God and his people forever. Pray that God would give us the motivation to reach the lost for Christ, to, to reach our neighbors, our family members, our friends, those in our circles of influence. Secondly, ask God for a greater motivation to see Christ formed in the lives of those we get to influence. Pray that we would see Christ formed in the lives of our children, in the next generations to come in our grandchildren. Pray that we would see Christ formed within the membership of our church at every age and every stage. Let's pray that Christ would be formed in us individually as we pursue spiritual maturity. And then lastly this morning, ask God for the, the kind of ministry where we get to celebrate the lost being found in Christ being formed in them. Uh, this morning, uh, I'd like to share, there's so much to thank God for as a church. You know, there are a number of different ministries that we've been able to be a part of during this time of year. We've had the Thanksgiving boxes right in November as we got to send those out. We had hot chocolate that we got to send out. We had the, the children's musical where people came, parents, family members, some who don't know the Lord Jesus. We, we have the Glenwood outreach that we did just yesterday. We had 34 individuals come and eat and have a meal with us, many of them who are homeless. And one of our guys here 
opened up the Bible to Luke chapter 2 and read about the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to have conversations with people. This is the sixth month where we get to tell people about Jesus. And our desire is that they would come to faith in Christ and that Christ would be fully formed in them. And there are so much more opportunities as well. You have opportunities individually. I have opportunities individually, and we have opportunities as a church. Let's celebrate the opportunities God has given us as we celebrate the fruit that will come as we finish up the year and look forward to the next. Can we pray this morning? Father, thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul, for his example, for his motivation to reach the lost for Christ, his motivation to see Christ fully formed and those to whom he ministered. And I pray, Lord, that we would have that same motivation, that we would share the kind of motivation for the lost, that we would be willing to deny ourselves in our earthly comforts, take up our cross and follow after Jesus, that the top priority of our lives would be Christ and him crucified and that we could make him known to the ends of the earth. Lord, I, I pray, Father, this morning, for the membership of our body, Lord, that you would use us, especially around this season of Advent. There's a possibility that some will be inviting some to Christmas dinner, others to Christmas Eve services. And I pray, Lord, that you would use our interactions and our conversations to introduce others to Jesus, especially around this season of the year. Father, if there's someone here today who would say, you know, I, I want a right standing with God and I desire to have forgiveness and the promise of, of heaven and everlasting life, and I recognize my need for Jesus, I pray that they can express this right now genuinely from my, their hearts. Father, I recognize my need for Jesus. I admit that I have fallen short. My sin separates me from God. But I believe that's why Jesus was born in a manger and died on a cross. He died to take my place so that my sins could be forgiven and so that I might have everlasting life. Today, I make Jesus my Savior, the one who forgives my sin. I make him my Lord, the one I follow all the days of my life as I'm going to watch as Christ is formed in me through the work of the Word and the Spirit in my heart. Father, give you all glory, honor, and praise and ask it in Jesus' name, amen.